0: And you may be seated Once again, welcome to Southridge We're excited to have you here Hopefully you were able to grab a cup of coffee on your way in And a muffin this morning We're excited to have you Looking forward to what God has in store for us Our sound equipment has been bouncing in and out. So I do apologize right now if it continues to do that. Our expert sound team is doing a great job at trying to work on it and fix it. Some of you chuckled. Man, (laughs) I meant that sincerely. I really did. And uh, so grateful. Can we just give the worship team a hand? Wow, that was just (laughs) phenomenal. I said it in the first service. I'm going to say it again. We used to sing songs about God If you grew up in a culture I grew up in, it was a lot of hymns, and there's nothing wrong with hymns. I still love the hymns, but a lot of the hymns sang about God, but these songs were singing to God. There's a lot of us that can talk about Johnny Depp in here, can't we? But there's not many that can talk to Johnny Depp. Do you see the difference? A lot of us can talk about God, but only some of us can talk to God. Why? There's a relationship. So when we sing songs that are worshiping to God, it changes the relationship. Because you have coworkers, they talk about God. Usually it's in a negative, derogatory way. Oh my, and they go off to it, or God and then something bad. But you and I, we get to talk to him. Oh, and that changes everything. So if you're one of those that's like, "Ah, I'm too manly for this worship stuff, and I'm going to come in after the worship, I'm telling you what, you're missing out. The worship it prepares our heart to seek God more and fuller. Well, welcome again. We are in a series entitled Hot Topics, where we're talking about five topics, and we're just kind of going through it. It's summer, it's hot, and so we thought, what better way to, to dive into the summer than to talk about stuff that's just uncomfortable, makes us squirm in our seat. We've talked about God and government. We've talked about Christianity and homosexuality. We've talked about the refugee crisis. And today, we're talking about the hottest topic of them all. We are talking about hell and as soon as i talk about it i know that there's been mixed emotions about it there are some people that are secretly, there squirming, ah, oh, talking about hell, really? I thought we've grown past that, we've outgrown it. And then there's this other group of people, they're more like, fundamental, they're like, yeah, we're talking about hell, burn them, get them. You got problems if that's you, though, I'm just going to say it right now. Like, let's just say it, all right? If that's you, like, yeah, we need a turn or burn message, because I grew up in that kind of a context. If that's you, like, I'm going to pray again for you, we got some holy water to dump on you. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, seriously, though, when we talk about hell, it's something where we bring up this topic, and I know three out of ten Americans are the only ones that still believe in it, where 70% is saying we no longer think it's real, we don't think it exists, we think it's just something that the Bible put in possibly as like a myth, or it's something that we just kind of, you know, use to scare children. It's kind of like, you know, when our parents would say, hey, you're going to go to the dentist, you don't go to the dentist, I'm calling the police, they're going to take you to jail. That's kind of God's way of saying I'm going to call the police. We use hell. And uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter number 16, and sometimes people would look at Luke 16 and say, well, that's a parable. The only issue I have when we call Luke 16 a parable is the fact that Jesus uses specific names, places, and details, where in parables, he doesn't do that. He's very general in parables. That's why, for many reasons, we look at Luke 16 as an actual account, something that really did happen. We don't look at it as one of Jesus' parables, one of his teachings to use to illustrate it. And uh, we're going to dive into it. But before we do, I think what we're seeing today across the landscape of church, And even in our culture, we're seeing an erasing of hell today. You say, what do you mean, an erasing of hell? And I say it like this because it seems to me that when it comes to hell, we've kind of just decided to just change it up. Let me illustrate it like this. And I do apologize if you have young children. I'm not trying to be vulgar about it, but just go with me for a second. Imagine there's a couple guys watching a football game. Let's not discriminate. There's ladies there too. And imagine the quarterback, he throws the football. The receiver has to jump to catch it. And he barely gets it on the tip of his fingers. And he palms it, tucks, lands in the end zone for the game winning touchdown. And man, everybody's high five him and everybody's excited. And then somebody says in the crowd, hell of a play. Maybe there's this. You're going off to work. And your friend, your buddy comes up to you and says, get this, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas. And I've got the hotel, I've got the airfare, and the person who's supposed to go to me backed out. Do you want to go to Vegas? I got everything covered. And your friend says, hell yeah. Let me go a little bit further. You're at work, you're a construction worker. And man, there's a bad accident. You break your arm, you twist an ankle, and all of a sudden somebody says, are you all right? And you say, it hurts like Hell. Or your wife comes up to you, and she says, hey, would you like to go on a vacation with my mother? Hell no. <laughs> What's happening to hell? We're erasing hell, aren't we? And we're using it as an adjective. Case in point, it's almost humorous. But should it be? Should hell be something that now in the church you hear less and less talk about hell? Is it in scripture or is it not in scripture? When you get into the conversation with the person who's not a believer and they say, how could a loving God, a supposed loving God, a supposed merciful God, create something and then send it or damn it to eternal fire and judgment forever? And all of a sudden you step back and say, yeah, I don't know. And they throw it in your face. They say, would you take one of your own children and would you hurt them Intentionally? Not a loving, kind parent would do that. And so then they start saying, well then, how come your God, and this is why they use an excuse why, why they won't go to church, why they don't believe in the Bible, or why they don't believe in God. The only problem we need to just push back, and let's, let's continue to use a little bit of logic here for a second, is the fact that am I a good parent? If I take, and some of you may find discomfort, I do own a shotgun. And if I take my shotgun and I hand my shotgun to my seven-year-old daughter, and I say, here, honey, here's some shells, here's the gun, have a good time with it. Daddy loves you. And daddy doesn't want to keep anything from you. Would I be a good parent? No. I'd be an unloving parent. A loving parent protects and warns. A loving parent says, okay, honey, you're about to go off to college, you're 18, and you're going to be moving to the other side of the country, you're going to be driving across country, so when you stop, I want you to call me, and if you have a breakdown, remember you got AAA, and and a loving parent gives warnings. So instead of us looking at talking about hell as an unloving, unkind, just can't we have a nice sermon on a nice Sunday, and can't we just come to church and everybody just kind of feel good and hug each other and laugh a lot, lot, and crack more jokes about mother-in-laws. Like, let's just have one of those sermons. Like, I don't feel that it's the loving thing to do. I don't feel like it's the kind thing. And so we're going to dive into a topic that, yes, is uncomfortable. But what I love about the summertime is it's a time where we can kind of dive into the topics and we can really uh, explore it and see it at a deeper level. And so let's look at Luke chapter number 16, and we're going to read several verses. And if you didn't break the Bible, that's okay. It'll be up on the screen, and, uh, or you can just use your phone or your iPad, whatever you use. And I'm going to begin reading verse number 19. Here's what the Word of God says. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. Remember, purple is a sign of wealth. This man had a, had a lot of means, and the fact that he was able to eat multiple meals per day, is also another sign this man is very wealthy, verse 20. But, in contrast, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gates, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom, this is talking about heaven. It means by Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, Hades is another word for hell. You have Hades, Sheol, and Gehenna are three Greek and Hebrew words for the same place. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus by his side. Then he He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received Good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send to me, to him, to my father's house. He's talking about Lazarus. Would you send Lazarus to my father's house? For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Notice again, he's constantly referring back to the place where he is, a literal place. And he's describing, he said, it's a place of torments, a place of flame. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead, As we dive into this message, I hope that God would use it to speak to our hearts, to give us a, an image in what would be considered a controversial topic, even in the church today, to talk about hell. And we're looking at this topic of why it seems that even in the church, we're erasing hell. And we're going to dive into that this morning. But notice if you would, this character Lazarus and this character the rich man. The rich man, they don't give him an identity except for the fact that he was wealthy. That then became his identity identity in the afterlife. In in hell his identity is simply the rich man. And this rich man, it's interesting, the Bible says he dies and he lifts up his eyes, he awakes, and where is he? He is now in this place called hell. What's the first thing he does? He notices that there's Abraham, next to Abraham is Lazarus, a man that begged at his gates. The man recognizes them. So this man in hell has full recognition. He he can remember places, he can remember things, and he sees sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. And what does this rich man do? It's interesting. The rich man not once does he say to Abraham, get me out of here. Isn't that interesting? If you're in hell, wouldn't you be begging? Hey buddy, come on, what do I got to do? What do I got to trade? I want to get out of here. But instead, what's he doing? Hey, that guy used to lay at my gates, send him over here. He's like, I don't want out, but I just want him in. Is this guy delusional or what? He's like, hey, I just want him to dip some water in my tongue. Really? Here, here, here's Lazarus, and here's this rich man. And this rich man, he's not once saying, hey, I want to get out of here. Instead, he's trying to get uh, Lazarus to come join him. And that's what happens. We have this, this delusion that comes over us. And sometimes when it comes to this topic of hell, some of us just think, well, if we just imagine it doesn't exist, it's just not there. And it leads to this delusion. It leads to this where we're not seeing things accurately. And then he begins to blame. You say, what do you mean blame? Notice what he says. He's inferring that he didn't receive enough information. He's saying, hey, Abraham, send send Lazarus to go tell my brothers the whole thing, how they can get here. He's saying, I didn't get enough information. I I didn't know enough. So make sure you send somebody to go go tell my brothers so they don't come to this place of torment. I don't want them to come here so go tell Lazarus and what does Abraham say? Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets and now if you you are new to the Bible you're probably thinking Moses I've heard of this guy what do you mean Moses? Isn't this thousands of years after Moses? They're like a zombified Moses that's walking around or something? No, no, no. What they're talking about is Moses in the first five books of the Bible it's called the Pentateuch. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy the first five books. In that time they would have had those books and then he said the prophets is he saying, hey, there's preachers that day? No, he's talking about the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These were books of the Bible. What he's saying is they have the Old Testament. The Old Testament will show them the way of salvation. But the rich man doesn't stop there, does he? He says, no, 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 that's not enough. The Bible's not enough. What? This is what'll do it. He said, he said to Abraham, this is what'll make convince them. He said, and this might sound familiar, he said, if Lazarus rises from the dead, and goes to my house, oh, my brothers, then they'll repent. And Jesus, in this parable, is inferring the fact that one greater than Lazarus will rise from the dead. And today, there is a risen Savior. But let me ask you this question. Today, there is a risen Savior. Does everybody believe? No. No. But what's happening today is we've got this erasing of hell, and we think it's the loving thing to do. We think it's the kind thing to do. And I know we don't want those socially awkward conversations. Let me tell you a little bit about my growing up. I grew up in a very fundamental Christian home. And so what we would do is on a Saturday morning, you would get up, you would dress up, and then you'd get these flyers. We'd call them gospel tracks. And you'd walk down the city streets, and you'd go up to a house. You would knock on the door. They would open the door. You'd say, hi, my name is Micaiah. I'm from so and such such church. If you were to die today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And they look at you like, little white dude, do you know something I don't? Because I'm about to slam this door in your face. And I would look at them and I would just hand them a track and be like, okay, all right, damn your soul to hell. And I go on to the next person, you know, it was just super awkward, super awkward. Now, is that what we're saying to do? No, I'm not saying do that. But there are some people that that's kind of how we, we, we approach this. We approach it and I, and, I, and I get it where it's this tough topic where is there hell, is there not a hell? Here's what's happening among a lot of people, and I see this happen often. I like funerals. You're saying, wow, that's weird. No, 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 I like them for this reason. Because I do a lot of funerals and I do a lot of weddings. When I do a wedding, it's 50-50 where they're staying together, but when I do a wedding, they're staying down there, all right? I don't have to worry about it. But also I like funerals because at that time, I get to hear all the stories about this person. You just get to hear the influence and legacy this person had on a person's life. But here's something that I see at funerals. And like I said, I'll do a lot of funerals. I'll do a funeral for anybody. Kaiser Hospital, since we're a church that's close to their network, whenever they need a Protestant, I'll go over there and I'll do a funeral for somebody. Or I'll, I'll, I'll be there when somebody's grieving and I don't mind it. I go over there. It's a great opportunity to just care for the community and help them. And what will often happen, and I even see well-meaning Christians do this. Somebody goes to a funeral and they'll go up to the widow or they'll go up to the father that lost a son or the son that lost a father, the uh, daughter lost a mother, whoever the family member may be. They put their arms around the person and they say something like this. Well, at least we know they're in a better place. And I get the sentimentality behind it, but there's something called universalism, and it's actually a belief that everybody is going to heaven. It's not rooted in the Bible. You can't hear Jesus teaching about it. There is no universalism, but yet it's prevalent among well-meaning, but rather, sorry to insult your intelligence for a second, rather just uneducated people. When it comes to this that, hey, we know they're in a better place. Do we really know? So whenever I do a funeral for somebody, I always want to talk to him, And I'll say, the Bible will tell us that, you know, for as many as believed him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Has, has this relative, did they, you, do you know if they made a decision to to trust Christ and to give him their life? Did they ever do that? And if they don't give me a clear testimony or if it's something where, no, we didn't, no, never, nothing like that, then I don't try to tell them they're in a better place. I don't tell them, hey, yep, Grandmama is burning right now. Uh, That's not kind. I don't do that. But at the same time, I'm not going to give them false hope. Why? Because then they think they have false hope. Because now they think, well grandma or dad. They never went to church. They never trusted Christ and they never followed him. So guess what? If they're fine, then I'm fine. Do you see where universalism gets us? It gets us. It takes away the judgment. And if it takes that away, then all of a sudden, then we don't have to atone for anything. There's no right and there's no wrong. This this whole idea of universalism that's crept into the church, it started in the 1200 BC. That's where it started. There was this guy. His name is Origen by the way. And he started this practice and we actually put it away as the church, put it away in the 1200s because we saw it as heresy. But then the 1800s, we brought it back out, universalism. And so we brought this idea of universalism and it's just prevalent. If you talk to people, they'll say, well, well, everybody goes to heaven. If you're just a good person, you go to heaven. You know, somebody can be sincere and still be sincerely wrong. And so we as the church, we have to be honest and have a tough conversation and say, is it there? Does God allow people to go to hell? Does he send people to hell? Do we send ourselves to hell? There's all these important conversations that we need to have, and we need to ask ourselves, and we need to dig deep in this place. And for some of us, we would say, well, it's all kind of just figment because the Bible's talking about Gehenna. And when it talks about Gehenna, understand this, Pashmachai. And back then, they had this big trash heap. And that trash heap back then, they would have uh, the dump, and there would be this constant fire, and then the dogs would eat the scraps, so the dogs would do this gnashing of teeth. So when the Bible talks about this place of Gehenna. It's talking about a trash heap. That's what it's talking about. Problem is, excavators have never found the trash heap. You know that? We would find trash. Not there. If this was such a place, you say, "Well, well, Jesus was just using this figment of his imagination." No, 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 it wasn't. He's talking about a literal, eternal place of burning fire, not just a figment trash heap. He's talking about something that was literal. That's what he's talking about. And so we need to, once again, dive into scripture and say, you know what, this is uncomfortable. We don't like talking about it. It's not something where we want to tell people about, but it's so important. There's a great book, and uh, it's called Hell's Best Kept Secret, and the writer uses a great illustration. In the book, he uses this illustration. Imagine we're all going to get in an airplane, and as we get on the airplane, we sit down, and then the stewardess is there and asks us, would you like coffee? Would you like soda? What would you like? Would you like a pillow? Uh, would you like a, uh, more room? Would you like to move up to coach? Or would you like to move up to first class? Well, too bad. It's not you. You're stuck here in coach. And so uh, as you go through all this, then the stewardess says, would you also like a complimentary parachute? I'm kidding me. <laughs> no, I don't want a parachute. Well, this parachute will make your journey much more comfortable. And in case of a, a crash landing, you'll be saved. And so, you know, you're just, it's a popular thing to do, is John 3.16 is etched on this parachute. just a very cool thing. And you're like, okay, give me a parachute. If it's going to make my journey more comfortable, and if it looks cool, I'm going to put on this parachute. And you put on the parachute. And you're going through this. 13, 14 hour flight to the other side of the world and as you're getting halfway through, you're really uncomfortable. And you start looking around. Nobody else is wearing parachutes. And you get up to use the restroom and you're, excuse me, pardon me, you're already, it's already small enough in coaching. You keep bumping up against people and you're like, man, I really don't like this parachute. Oh, it's heavy and man, everybody's staring at me. They think I'm better than everybody else because I'm wearing this parachute that has John 3.16 on it and man, I just seem so... St- are strange and you, you can't even use a little laboratory because it's too small for the parachute you got and uh, it's so uncomfortable and so you eventually ditch the parachute now imagine a second scenario you get back on the plane and the stewardess as she's buckling you in and handing your coffee she says, shh, this airplane's going down you need this parachute all of a sudden, you're like, thank you very much. Oh, well, first of all, you wouldn't get on the plane, would you? <laughs> you're like, no, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> yep, I'm smarter than that, right? And you wouldn't even get on the airplane, but you're on this airplane, and all of a sudden, you get this parachute because you find out it's going down. You're like, I don't care if it's uncomfortable. I don't care if it's I'm safe, Right? We wonder why there's a culture that's abandoning Christianity and abandoning following Jesus. And I think part of it is because we have a Christianity that says, God's got this great purpose for your life. And if you just give him your life, he's going to make your life prosperous. It's going to be great and it's going to be awesome. It's just going to be so much fun. Don't you want to be with us? And it's kind of like you're getting everybody to drink this Christian (laughs) Kool-Aid. And we wonder why people are like, I'm, no, I'm not really into that. When we erase hell... We erase the penalty. We erase the fact that a good God does have to have some checks and balances. There must, sin must be paid for. Sin must be atoned for. So when we talk about hell, would you first of all, would you please write this down? Hell is not just a doctrine. It's about a destiny. It's not just a doctrine. We're talking about destinies here. Each week we've talked about a different topic, and this is why it's so important, because we're not just talking about uh, 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 issues. We're talking about individuals here. So when we talk about hell, it's not something where we in the church are like, yeah, let's go get all those wicked people. No, we don't feel good about this. The reality is, as a Christian pastor, I wish universalism were true. I really do. You say, why? Because whenever I go to the store, whenever I go to a foreign country, whenever I go sit around with family members that I know do not believe in Jesus, have never given their life to Jesus, do you know what that does inside of me? Do you know what the wrestling that I have inside of my soul, knowing that this person were to die in their sin, they would die and spend eternity in a Christless hell? Do you know what kind of internal uh, uh, anxiety that creates? So for me, universalism would be great. I just don't see it. Maybe you do, and maybe that's a conversation we can have over coffee. But in the 12 or in, in, in the four Gospels, we see Jesus, he taught on hell 12 times. The only topic that Jesus talked about more than hell was money. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus was all about love. He was all about love, but he didn't teach about love nearly as much as he taught on hell and finances. Hell was important. But he's not the only one. If you were to go to Acts chapter number 17, the Apostle Paul, the great evangelist, the one that took the gospel to the entire known world of his day, he came to a city and he went up and preached a message. It's the message he preached on Mars Hill. And you would think if you're in a pagan country, then in a pagan country, you would kind of want to learn the cultural lingo. You'd kind of want to... uh, Get involved in the indigenous ways of the people and really speak the cultural language and not be offensive so you wouldn't come out right at the gate and talk about hell. But if you read his message in Acts chapter number 17, he does just that. He talks about hell. He talks about eternal punishment. That's how he witnesses to these pagan people. It's a great city. It's a city of 300,000 people. And the apostle Paul talks about judgment. So today, I know, it's one of those topics we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about, but it's one of those things where we as the church is being silent, more loving, is us sitting back and just saying, well, they'll figure it out. Do we not have a divine responsibility? You say, no, I'm only more Calvinist, I think God is sovereign, he'll work it out. Okay, that's fine. But how do you reconcile where the Bible still commands, go into all the world and preach the gospel? That's still a direct command. Whether you believe in Calvinism or not, we still have a responsibility to carry the message. You still have a responsibility to be salt and light. You try to argue that away, you can't. We still have our part to play. We still have our responsibility. It's why our life group tonight, we're going to go to a a laundromat and we're going to pay for everybody's laundry. Why? Because we want to get involved in our community. We want to touch lives. It's why next Tuesday we want you to show up at our National Night Out. Why? So that we could show our community that there's a church that's just not saying, hey, on Sundays come to us, but we're saying we're going to go to you. We're going to help you. It's why we are trying to collect money for backpacks and collect school supplies so that children and families will go to school in a couple weeks with new backpacks, new school supplies, because it's hard for families that have seven or five kids to pay for new backpacks and new school supplies. So our church is stepping into that space. So that when somebody is thinking about the love of God, they've seen a firsthand demonstration. What motivates us is because we do believe that there is a hell. We do believe that people's eternal destinies are at stake, and so we are motivated to do something. We refuse to sit back on the sidelines, because we are not just talking about a doctrine. We're talking about people's destiny. We're talking about where they're going to spend eternity, and we're talking about it in a real and a personal way. So we can't just sit back and think, it's all good. I don't have to do anything. No. No we need to. One of the things Jane and I do every night is we pray over our children. Every night. Not a night goes by we do not pray over our children. One of the prayers that we pray, Megan, who recently got baptized on July 3rd, she's received Christ. She's seven years old. But there's Austin and then there's Cain. Cain is five months old. Austin is five years old. And so we keep praying that they would make the personal decision to receive Christ as their Savior. I don't know when and I don't know how God's going to bring it about but I've started now praying for them to be saved. I pray that they would be God Young men that would follow him And so we've started praying right now for their salvation And it's one of those things that we do Because we believe it's so important that they know I would hate the fact that my children As I try to lead a community To tell others about Jesus And I lose my own children in the process We need to be busy about telling others about Jesus This is their great commission This is the mission that the church should have And a church that loses its mission to tell others Is a church that I would say is not compassionate I would submit that the church does not care if we don't care for the fundamentals of the soul, that our souls will spend eternity somewhere. We must answer that question. But maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, I get it. But let's say... I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christ follower. But I've grown up my whole life. I've studied different religions. And there's a whole lot of religions. I look at Islam. And I look at Buddhism. And I look at Hinduism. And I look at Shintoism. And I look at the Baha'i faith. And I look at Mormonism. And I look at all these different religions. And all these religions tell me to do something. It's based on a resume. A resume. You say, what do you mean a resume? Anybody ever gone for those job interviews? And you got to bring that resume? Only one of you have ever been on a job interview. That's amazing. we got a bunch of broke people in this church. My goodness. That explains why we don't have a building. All right, that's why. How many of you have been on a resume and got an interview? There we go. All right, it's too hot in here. We're like, no, I don't want to. I'm going to church. I don't raise my hand. No, come on. Work with me, people. So you go there, and all of a sudden, they want to hear all of your list of what you've accomplished, who have you worked for, what's your education. They want to see that list. Have you ever met that person that has that list spiritually? Here's all the reasons God should let them into heaven. Here's all those reasons. And they come up with that list. And if you're approaching your eternal destiny with that list, I'm sorry, you're going to be sorely mistaken because at the throne of God, that list is not going to matter. Because the Bible says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Do you have to earn a gift? Absolutely not. A gift is freely given. Why? Because the perfect, spotless, shed blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and I so that we could have heaven forever and ever. So to do anything less is to... Bring down the name of Jesus. So we understand that Jesus shed his blood for us. That apart from receiving that free gift of salvation, I don't have salvation. The Bible says neither is there salvation in any other except the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's not one of the ways. The Bible says he's the way. And I'm not trying to be bigoted. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to put down other religions. I'm just saying, Jesus said he's the way. Now, I know many of you, you work in this cultural area where people are highly educated. So here's one of the arguments I've heard. Maybe you've heard it too. When they talk to you about religion or they talk to you about Christianity, they may say this to you. They may say, well, it's kind of hard for you to say your way is the only way because they look at it as a mountain. And there's different paths of a mountain. So we can all pick different paths. Or they use this illustration. There's 10 blind men. Ten blind men, never seen an elephant. They all encounter an elephant. One guy, he grabs the elephant's trunk, and he says, I know what elephants are like. They're thin and flexible. That's what an elephant's like. Another guy, he grabs the leg of the elephant, and he says, no, elephants are, wow, short And stocky, that's what an elephant is. Another guy, he grabs the tail of the elephant. He says, no, they're skinny and hairy. Another guy, he grabs the tusks of the elephant. And he says, no, they're sharp and it's hard. That's what an elephant is. And then somebody would say, so that's what religion, that's why we need all the religions, so we can get a better picture of how to get to heaven and who God is. And for years, I heard that illustration, and I was like, man, how do you wrestle with it? How do you wrestle with an idea? I got it. When you use that argument, you are predisposing that you know what an elephant looks like. Let me back it up a step further. When you say that Christianity is not the only way, you're saying you know the way. That's what you're saying. You're predisposing that, guess what? It's not your way, and it's not that way, and then you're just finding the cop-out by saying, well, we don't know the way. We've got to get them all together. No, no, there is one way. There is one way. And the way is Jesus. And so the church, we could say, oh, we're being kind. We're being loving. Or we step back and say, you know what? No, we've got to be about the truth. We've got to give people the truth. Now, how we give the truth is we have to be very careful. I don't think we need to be uh, 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 hurtful about it. I don't think we need to be the we're better than you about it type attitude. This is why I think it's so important our church doesn't have a Christian softball league. You say, what? No, let me just tell you Why? I want you to stay in your unsaved soccer leagues and unsaved softball leagues because whenever you have the Christian leagues, you cuss just like you're not Christians, so we might as well just keep you in the regular soccer leagues, okay? Now, that's not the only reason, but here's why. I want you to keep having your unsaved lost friends build the relationship with them so when they go through a difficulty, when they go through a trial, they start talking to you and they say, hey, you and your wife, you guys are still sticking it out. You guys are working it out. Do you guys ever fight? And you say, of course we do. Man, we always have a good night." knock out, drag out, fight. That wouldn't be a good Friday without one. And it's just like, that's normal. But the makeup, well, there's kids in the room. Anyway, so um, so when it comes to just stuff like that, we just say, you know what, yeah, but then they get to talking to you and you're like, you know, you gotta go to church. This is why in your worship guides we have outreach cards so you can tell them about Jesus. This is why we make it so, so many opportunities to get out into our community to tell people about Jesus. Yes, we're a startup church, but we want to invest into our community. We want to love this community right around us because we want the fact that if our church were ever to disappear, people would say, hey, what happened to that Southridge church? Man, they used to do so many great things for our community. Where did they go? We want them to know that this is a place that cares not only about their eternal destiny, but then also about their right here, their right now. And so when it comes to heaven, it's not based on your resume, it's based on a referral. You say, what do you mean? I could say it like this. It's not what you know, but it's, can you finish it? Yeah. Who you know. It's not what you know when it comes to heaven. You say, how do we know that? One of the scriptures in the Gospels. Next to Jesus, there was another thief, and this thief said, "This man has done nothing wrong. Remember me in paradise." And Jesus said, "Today, you will be with me in paradise." Did that thief know anything about the Bible? Did he go to a vacation Bible school and memorize verses? Did he have a sticker chart with all his stickers, all the gold stickers? Did he ever get a a prize in rich kids for the quiet and still? Did he ever pass an offering plate? Did he ever sing on a worship team? Did he ever uh, preach a message? No, no. It's not what you know. It's who you know. It's all about knowing Jesus. That's the starting point for your relationship. Has your faith had a starting point? Hey, we talk about a relationship. I can tell you when my relationship started with my wife, Jane, it was august 2005. That's when the relationship started. It was a starting point. I remember it I remember when my kids had a starting point when they were born on their birthday. I remember it What about your faith? Is there a starting point? I'll tell you what until I was 14. I just always assumed I was going to heaven I grew up in a family that I was just like my dad's a pastor All my brothers are christians and uh, I got brothers that are pastors brothers that worked in church and all kinds of stuff So I just assumed that man i'm going to heaven and then one day, my brother, he came back from team camp. He's four years older than me. And he came back from teen camp, and he's like, I got saved. I was like, you got what? And you got to understand my brother Josh. My brother Josh, the power goes out, will light the room with his halo. He was the perfect one, the favorite, the mama's boy. He got all the cool gifts. He was just the man, right? And I was just like, well, the opposite, okay? Uh, horns held up my halo, and uh, that's what it was, okay? And so I was like, well, if he ain't going, I'm screwed. My goodness, this is not, God, this is not working for me. And so God used that in my life to start Convicting me. And all of a sudden, I remember the convicting work of the Holy Spirit just saying, hey, Mekhi, you're faking it. You're faking it. You're faking it. And I just felt that inside of my heart where I knew I had never made my own decision to follow Jesus. It was always a borrowed faith. It wasn't a personal faith. It was somebody else's decision, not mine. And remember, it's not a resume. It's referral. But you say, what about for the church? We've got to wrap things up. We're running out of time. But we see, what about the church? What is the church doing? What should the church's reaction be? And I find that we're very much like a Revelation chapter 2 and 3 church. You say, what do you mean? If you look at the landscape of churches, 4,000 churches a year close their doors. Churches are closed why? Because we've gotten to the point where we're lukewarm. You see what I mean? Revelation chapter number three, verses 15, verse 16. The Bible's talking to the seven churches. And he says, you seven churches, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm. And so I just want to spew you out of my mouth. It literally wanted to throw them up out of his mouth. God speaking. What I see in the church is we're lukewarm and we're loving it. We're not aggressive about people. We're not aggressive about sharing the love of Jesus with others. Instead, we want to come and just kind of get comfortable. And I know it's a great struggle. The great struggle is, are we going to be passionate or are we going to be passive? Are we going to be passionate about telling others about Jesus? Or are we going to just sit back and just say, it's all good. But here's the thing. We've got to get to the point where we say, no, we're going to be passionate again about this. This is what Jesus gave his life to tell others about Jesus. This is the great commission for us. But for many, it's the great omission. And for some of us, we've got to get our passion back. In Revelation chapter number two, if you go down to verse number four, the Bible talking to a church says, you have left your first love. Some of you have read the passage. Here's the thing about that first love. That first love was their love of God, their love to serve Him and please Him. And when we get the vertical right, the horizontal will be right. As we love God, it'll flow out. As we love God, it'll flow out into our community. It'll flow out into our families. It'll flow out. But what happened was this church, they didn't lose it, they left it. There's a big difference. It's sad today in America that many relationships will break up, good marriages will break up. And if you talk to them, they'll say this, the love ran out. Here's the thing about that, when they say, the love ran out, I think it's foolish to use that, uh, that as an argument to leave a relationship. You say, why? Because whenever you buy a car and it runs out of gas, do you say, nope, got to get a new one. <laughs> third time this week, the third car this week that I've had to buy. These cars keep running out of gas. It's the same logic, friend. You see, when it comes to passion, we didn't lose it, we left it. So as the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to step back up and say, wait a minute, does the, does the God of the Bible teach a hell? If he does, let that motivate me to tell my friends. Let it motivate me to build the relationships. It's part of the reason why I like going to a CrossFit gym because I get to spend the time with the people. We talk, we interact with each other, and then I'm able to tell them about Jesus. I go to the same barber to get my hair cut, and I always tip them, and I always talk about church. And the other day, the people behind me he was saying they were laughing because they didn't think I was a pastor. They were like, pastors don't wear Nikes. Pastors don't dress like you. Pastors don't look like you. Pastors don't talk like you. I wasn't cussing. I was not cussing, I promise you. And they said, pastors look a whole lot older than you. I said, I know, it's great, isn't it? People walk in, it's like, is the real pastor here? And I'm like, yeah, no, this 15-year-old looking pastor, this is me, I'm, I'm really. I'm the real one. Remember Dookie Hauser, you know? That's the doctor. That's kind of me, alright? And it's going to stay like that, okay? So it's all good, alright? And uh, so so when it comes to the church, we need to get our passion back. You don't lose it, you leave it. But how do we get our passion? Passion is not a sensation, passion is a decision. It's a decision. What are you going to be passionate about? Are you going to be passionate about that neighbor next door? You say, well, they vote different. They look different. They smell different. They eat different food. And they love different people. Wait a minute. Do we not have a responsibility? Do we not have a responsibility to take the gospel of Jesus to our sphere of influence? The Bible says you are to be salt and light in our community. So let me ask you this question. Are you salty and are you bright? Let's add some more salt. My wife made a recipe the other day and I rarely do this but I said it just needs more salt. It just needs that salt. It's just not quite doing it for me. So we added a little bit of salt. Oh, it was good. Is that sea salt. You got to grind it up and everything. It's the pink one from Costco and it just changed the rest. You are nodding. That's the most reaction I've gotten this entire message is about salt. Are you kidding me right now? It's because the new Costco across the street. That's what it is. I see next week the hot topic is Costco. Get their hot dogs for $149. Are Alright. Now, when it comes to the gospel, are we passionate about it, or are we passive? Are we going to sit back while the world is hitting back, or are we going to keep giving God our spare time and spare change and think we're making a difference? And that's the reality of it. Church, we need a building. Church, we need to grow. Church, we need more volunteers. Church, we need more people out of the National Night Out. We need more people to do stuff. And if we're just going to sit back and think, well, somebody's going to do it. Can I tell you this? Somebody's not a person. Alright? But here's what I will say. All of us do wear a name tag. And that name tag does say somebody. You're the somebody. God didn't call a pastor to go reach the world. He called a people to reach the world.